Exodus chapter 20. Very, very familiar, very famous passage in the Old Testament. The story of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Scripture says this in Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and so you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold back will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He goes on to say, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall work, uh, you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day, a rest day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your oxen or the sojourner who is within your gate. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And here's where we're focused our time on today. Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his servant or his oxen or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And it says that then when the people all saw the thunder, when they heard this, when they saw the flashing of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain then smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And it says they stood far off and they said to Moses, you can speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, don't, don't fear, for God has come to test you, that you may fear him, that you may not sin. And it says the people stood far off while Moses drew in to the thick darkness where God was. God, be with us this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are taking a break from our series. We've been going through the seven deadly sins, taking one each week. I was talking to someone before the service, and they said, we wondered if you were going to do, uh, if you were going to continue the series on the seven deadly sins, because the next one is wrath, and that actually may make sense for Mother's Day. And I thought, uh, yeah, pretty good idea. I didn't do that. Um, but we're taking a break today. We're going to take a break and talk about uh, about motherhood, about what it means to be a mother and how, how deeply uh, important and how deeply theological motherhood truly is. And, and you may be here, and obviously uh, many of us are not mothers, right? Um, and you may think, how does this apply to me? And let me just, let me just encourage you to think through this sermon as we talk about, as we talk about idolatry, as we talk about uh, the tenderness of the Lord, uh, and just be praying that God will speak to you sort of wherever you're at. But hopefully this will be especially uh, appropriate 
for the mothers in this room. And so this morning I want to talk about um, the importance of motherhood, the dangers of motherhood, and the mission of motherhood. And over the years we've addressed some of these before, but let me talk first about this, the importance of motherhood. Unfortunately, when we read a passage like this, the story of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments, when for some of us who grew up in church or, um, or have heard these stories maybe our whole lives, when we hear a story like that, it loses some of its force, right? It loses some of its power because it's so familiar to us. But as you're reading that story, the, the, the context is the people of Israel are terrified in that moment, right? They say, Moses, you can talk to us, but don't let God talk to us lest we die. This is a terrifying moment. God, the people of Israel knew, God's people knew that what the Lord was giving to them was profoundly serious. And part of, for me at least, and maybe you caught this too, part of what's so staggering, I think, to many of us, as we read through or hear that list of Ten Commandments, is the juxtaposition between those commandments that seem so serious to us and the commandments that don't seem very serious to us, right? It's interesting to think when the, when, when the Lord is giving these top ten marks to his people, he would say on the one hand, don't worship false gods, right? He's talking about idolatry. Don't have any other gods before me. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who saved you. I'm the God who made you. You don't need to have any other gods. You can't have any other gods. And remember the Sabbath. Take a day off. Right, you see the juxtaposition there? Like one seems very, very serious to us, and the other one, maybe not as much. And then he'll say, don't, don't murder, right? Don't take another person's life. Don't kill another person and honor your mom and dad. There's, there's a tension here. And I think part of what that is saying is that God values rest as much as he values authentic worship of the one true God. It's saying to a certain extent God is valuing, honoring our parents as much as we honor the sanctity of life. These particular commandments to honor mother and father, they're actually repeated. This commandment is repeated over and over and over again throughout Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament in one way or another. Jesus affirms this commandment, the commandment to honor mother and father in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke's Gospel. Paul reiterates his commandment several times in the New Testament. He says, for example, in Ephesians 6, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. He goes on to do something very similar like what uh, God did in the Ten Commandments in 2 Timothy 3. You see this, this tension, this juxtaposition. Paul will say this, and this is typical of Paul. He'll often give these lists of, of kind of categories of people. And he says, there are some people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, People who are proud, people who are arrogant, people who are abusive, and people who are disobedient to their parents. Right? Which one of these is not like the other? That just doesn't seem to quite fit, right? And he goes on to say, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal people. Disobedient. It's to parents, the same list as brutal and treacherous and unholy. Parenthood is important. Motherhood is important. Mothers, like God, are the source of all life. Mother, motherhood is a gift that points back to our Creator as the giver of all life. Of course, God is most prominently referred to as and identified as Father 
throughout Scripture, but there are a few instances that in highlighting um, the tenderness and the intimacy that God has with his people, the writer chooses to use the image of a mother. For example, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, it says, You were mindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 66 will say, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, says the Lord. I will comfort Jerusalem. Motherhood is profoundly important because it points back to our creator, God. It points back to the the love and the tenderness of our creator. The Ten Commandments uh, say such things, the scripture says such things about honoring fathers and mothers. It's included there in the Ten Commandments to highlight the seriousness and the gravity of this commandment, of this relationship. Motherhood is important. Abraham Lincoln said something like, no man is poor who has a godly mother, right? And some of us who have experienced the joy of having a godly mother in our lives can say yes and amen to President Lincoln. Now, it's important for us to say probably at this point that, um, of course, some parents, some mothers are wicked. Some mothers are cruel. Some, some mothers are are verbally or physically abusive. Some mothers are distant, uh, manipulative. Some, some parents abandon their children. And yet even, even the pain, there's something there, right? Even the pain that those things cause a person, the horrors that that provokes... That highlights this deep evil, the the profound wrongness of parents that don't reflect the image of their creator. They don't reflect the love of their creator. They don't reflect the tenderness of their creator, the mercy of God. And I'll just say that honoring wicked parents looks a lot different than honoring godly parents. It's complex. There's not an easy answer. I think oftentimes... Pastors are, are quick to, to kind of give the people an easy answer, and we just don't have it. It's difficult. Scripture calls us, commands us to honor our mothers and fathers, and yet some are much easier to honor than others. And honoring will look very different for some than it does for others. Some of us here, as I said, we enjoy the benefits of having uh, the, the, the blessing of a godly mother in our lives. I think I have... Uh, Four generations of godly women uh, in my family sitting here right in front of me. It's a, it's a blessing to me. It's a gift to me. Some of us experience the, the profound, the, and some of us experience this profound sense of loss because our mothers were not or our mothers are not these representatives of God's grace in our life. Motherhood is extremely important. Parenthood is extremely important. And because motherhood is so important, because parenthood in general is so important, it is also seriously dangerous. It it is fraught with all kinds of potential problems and pitfalls. Several years ago, some of you you guys who have been around a long time, I'm trying to think, I think it was in 2010, um, I preached a sermon on Mother's Day called How to Destroy Your Children. Anybody here still was, okay, the Michelsons. And you guys stuck around even after that. Praise God. That's evidence of God's mercy in my life. Thank you. 
When you preach a sermon on Mother's Day called How to Destroy Your Children, that's a big hit all the way around. I mean, it just, it just strums the heartstrings, right? Um, the thesis was essentially this, that, that we can destroy our children by idolizing them, right? This is, this is the temptation, uh, maybe especially for moms, and we'll talk about maybe why that is. But we, we, the temptation for us is to idolize our children, and when we idolize our children, that we give them a burden, we put on them a burden that they cannot bear. When we, when we communicate to them um, that either motherhood in general or, or our children in particular are idols around which our lives orbit, neither we nor our children can handle that heavy burden of being worshipped. We just can't. We are all in this room very poor gods. And yet this is very typical of what we do. Uh, in, a, in, a, in his little book, uh, Tim Keller, uh, on counterfeit gods, very beautiful, masterful book, he says, a counterfeit God is anything so central to you, so essential to your life, that if you were to lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Right? An idol has such a controlling position in our hearts that we spend most of our passion and most of our energy, most of our emotional and financial resources on these things without giving it a second thought. Idolatry, Paul will say very clearly in Romans, idolatry is simply worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Right, so it's taking these good things like, like children or even like maybe the, our place as parents or our place as mother or our place as father and saying, this is the most important thing. This is how I understand myself. This is where I find my ultimate identity, my ultimate security, my ultimate purpose. And we so burden ourselves and burden our children that they can't bear it. It's not that we love our children too much. It's in some ways that we don't love them enough to withhold that burden of idolatry from them. Or to use the, the kind of hyperbolic language of Jesus, he will say that, in, in, for example, in Matthew 10, whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, is, is Jesus, do we think that Jesus is in any way telling us that we shouldn't love our parents or we shouldn't love our children? Of course he's not. The opposite. We saw in Scripture, this is a serious thing for the Lord. And yet he is saying that if you, if you love them more than me, you will crush them. We will crush them. It's a burden that we can't bear. Motherhood is dangerous because of the overwhelming pressure. The, over, the overwhelming pressure of motherhood um, makes it easy for moms, maybe especially for new moms. And we saw there's several uh, new and even sometimes first moms up here just a minute ago. There's so much overwhelming pressure for moms to look away from God, sort of turn our turn our head away from God and look towards maybe motherhood in general, or our children in particular, for our purpose and our self-worth. Now, moms, you don't need to raise your hand, right? 
But that's the, that's the temptation. And there's significant pressure to do that, to say, I'm going to look away from my creator, I'm going to look away from my Lord and my Savior to give me my identity, to tell me who I am, and I'm going to base my identity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to base my self-worth on, am I a good mom or not? And some of you I know have, have felt that burden. I, I'll be accepted if I'm a good mom, right? I'll be rewarded with perfect children if I'm a good mom. I'll win the approval of the other moms if I'm a good mom. And if I'm not a good mom, then I won't feel accepted. I won't feel rewarded. I won't feel approved of, right? The worst thing you can do for your child, I've said this before, um, the worst thing that we can do for our children is to convince them that the world uh, orbits their reality, that they are the most important person in the world, that they are the most important thing in the world. You see how damaging that can be for anyone's psyche when we give them the burden of thinking, you know what, the whole world revolves around you, you are the most important thing, your wants, your needs, your desires, that takes precedent over everything else. It's crushing. It's an overwhelming burden. As opposed to saying, you have been, you are, you are creation and you have a creator who has made you, who has given you dignity and value and worth because what he has done for you, who he has made you to be, what he says about you, he has, he has even given himself for you to save you. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is because if we keep, keep telling our kids, you're so good, you're the most important thing, then at some point in their lives, and you all know this, they're not going to feel very good and important. They're going to know, in fact. They're going to know their own hearts and know that they're not very good or important at different seasons in their life. And they will, they will have this existential crisis and think, who am I then? If it's not all about me in this life, well, then what's this life really about? And we've set them up for that since the early days by telling them and convincing them, you're the most important thing in the world. I read recently this book on parenting, and it said something like, we spend the first 18 months of our children's lives convincing them that they are the most important thing in the world, and then we try to spend the next 18 years convincing them that they're not, right? And some of you, especially with older children, know what I'm talking about, right? A couple amens out there? No? Okay. Okay. Good. We destroy our children. We can destroy our children um, if we look to them for our ultimate purpose and our ultimate pleasure. Do you see that? The same could be true if I would say this about our spouse too, okay? So again, you, you may not be a mother today. You may have no relationship with your mother today. This, this concept, may, that Mother's Day may not mean a thing to you, but I want you to think that when you put that burden on anyone else in your life, whether it's, you know, if it's your children, if it's your spouse, if it's your partner, whoever that person is, when you say, you're the most important thing, I'm going to look to you for my ultimate pleasure, for my ultimate purpose in life, you're going to be found wanting and they're going to feel overwhelmed. Our kids are not to be our ultimate source of meaning and purpose. And what happens, I've, I've talked to several you know, empty nester parents who they, they live the first 18 years of their life as though their kids are really the source of their ultimate purpose and then their kids leave and there's this serious crisis. Well, well then who, who am I then if not that? 
They are not, our children are not meant to be the source of our ultimate purpose. They are not designed that way. They are not built that way. We can, we can destroy our children as well if we look to them for our ultimate, our ultimate security or our ultimate success. Keller goes on in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. So what is that for you? Maybe you're single and you're thinking, if, if I just get married, then I'll feel whole. Or maybe you want to have children and you think that. If I just have children, then I'll have real meaning and purpose. Or if my children just leave, I'll have true meaning and purpose, right? Whatever that, you don't have to say amen on that one. Please don't. Your kids may be here. An idol is whatever you look to and say, if I have that thing, then I'll finally know I have meaning. I have value, that I'm significant, that I'm secure. There's this beautiful passage in Psalm 16. It says this, and I want you to listen to this. Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9. In fact, I'll give you a second to turn there if you want. Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9. The, the psalmist says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Now, what does that tell us? That's a, that's a very powerful, very short statement that, that communicates to us the truth that God says we, we will find our ultimate joy where we find our ultimate security and the other way around, right? Look what it says. I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, right? There's security there. I feel safe in this place. I feel safe in the Lord. Therefore, what? My heart will be glad. My whole being will rejoice. And my flesh will feel secure. We find our ultimate joy where we find our ultimate security. And if you're looking to your children, if you're looking to your spouse, if you're looking to anything other than your creator for your ultimate security, you will always miss out on ultimate joy. Or if you look to them for your joy, you'll miss out on your ultimate security. We also could destroy our children by looking to them for our ultimate value or self-worth. I think this is most prominently seen in how we discipline our children. Because if we're looking to them as the thing that gives us our self-worth, then we look at them as a reflection not of God's image, but of our image. We think of them just as smaller representations of who we are. And so we refuse to discipline. Some of us, we refuse to discipline at all, or we ignore it and deny it. We put them on a pedestal, right? If we make them our God, then we can't see them as failures, and so we never discipline them at all. They're perfect little angels, right? That won't last long. It's not going to last long. Or we discipline them just because of poor performance. And so, and so what happens is that it looks bad on, when our children do something bad, it looks bad on us, Right? And so we think of their success or their popularity or their personality as our success, as our popularity, as our personality. And so we discipline them when they make us not look good. Or we discipline them just to punish them and not to correct them. We, we're looking more for external compliance rather than internal transformation. We're not looking for gospel restoration. We're just looking for rule keeping. Because we're putting on them a burden that they can't bear. And of course, we could destroy our children by looking to them as our ultimate source of salvation, right? 
And so we, maybe we wouldn't say this, but we would live in such a way that we, we refuse to believe that we are justified by faith, and we think that we are justified by faithful parenting. We think, I will be made right, I will feel whole, I will feel okay, I will be made right, that's what justified means. Not by the, the, the gift of faith that God has given me, but by my ability to be a good mom or a good dad. And it just won't happen. That's a lie. Motherhood is not only important and dangerous, but there is also a very clear mission of motherhood. I shared this story, I think, several years ago here at the church or somewhere else, but um, there's this passage, there's, there's this scene in the Gospel of John, you may remember it, toward the end of the Gospel of John, um, where Jesus is on the cross, Jesus is literally dying, being crucified, and there at the foot of the cross um, are, um, you have John, the writer of the Gospel, the beloved disciple, you have Jesus' mother, and you have Mary Magdalene, right? That's the scene there at the end of John's gospel. And what happens is Jesus, while Jesus is on the cross, before he dies, he looks at his mom and he indicates to the, to the beloved disciple, he indicates to John, he says, Mother, behold your son. This is your son now. And he looks at John, he looks at the beloved disciple and he says, Behold, this is now your mother, right? And, and, and scripture says in John 19, And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. This passage is interesting for several reasons. We, we know from the context that, that John, at this point when Jesus was crucified, John was a very young man, maybe even early teens. And that Mary, in all likelihood, was probably in her um, maybe late 40s. Almost certainly widowed. And so what you can understand from the context of this passage that from that day on that that almost certainly Jesus lived with that John lived with Mary the writer of the gospel of John lived with Jesus's mother Mary for maybe 30 or 40 years right he can this is this would have been the custom he would have cared for her all of these years as a widowed woman not even considering that Jesus had looked him in the eyes and says John this is your mother imagine having that kind of access to Jesus' mom, right? Imagine the stories that you would hear. Imagine what you would want to know, right? If, you had, if, you had, if, if the mother of Jesus lived in your house for 30 or 40 years, imagine what, imagine what you would want to ask her, imagine what you would want to learn. You'd want to hear about, you'd want to hear about what was it like when, when Gabriel announced that you were pregnant? Tell me about that. What, what was it like living, knowing that, that the creator of the universe was growing in your womb? What, what was it like to rear the Messiah? Tell me about your birth story. Tell me, tell, me about, tell me about this long trip to Bethlehem that you took with Joseph. Tell me about the pain you felt when you thought that Joseph would leave you when he learned that you were pregnant. How would you even convince your parents and your friends and your fiancé that, that this was a gift from the Holy Spirit that you were carrying the king of the universe? Tell me about that, right? John would have had all the details. John would have had all the details about the announcement, about the pregnancy, about the birth, about, about Jesus as a little kid, Right? John would have had the most intimate access to all of those stories. What was it like being a new mom? All the struggles and joys and confusions of rearing the Messiah? What was that like? 
And yet, unlike all the other gospel writers, unlike Matthew, unlike Mark, unlike Luke, John includes almost nothing about Mary. Isn't that interesting? The man with the most access, the man who lived with this woman for 30 or 40 years, wrote almost nothing in his gospel, even in contrast to the other gospel writers, about Jesus' own mother. In fact, he never even mentions her by name. He never mentions her by name. This woman he lived with for decades. This was, it was shocking to me when I first made that connection. And I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it. Now, of course, we can't speak for Mary. We can't speak for John. But, but the one man who had spent the most time with Jesus' mother, who likely knew her better than anyone else, who had the most access to her life and to her story, when he sat down to write his gospel, when he sat down to write this book for the church, the focus was all about Jesus and not about Mary. There is no hint at all that Mary told John, don't forget to tell them about when I learned I was pregnant. Just please remember to tell them what it was like uh, to, to bear the Messiah. Make sure you don't leave out this important story. It was not at all what I expected. I want you to make sure that they know my story. It's almost as though Mary told John, just talk about Jesus. Just talk about Jesus. The story's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. I want every story on every page, every word to point directly to Jesus. You don't even have to mention my name. I believe Mary understood this mission of motherhood. She knew that it wasn't about her. It was about her Lord. It was about her Savior. It was about her King. It was about her Son. It was about Jesus. Mothers, don't, don't forget your mission. Don't forget your mission, mothers. And fathers, your, your role is so important. And the dangers of your role are real. You will be tempted to get lost in the trap of performance or get lost in the trap of pride. There are so many temptations. You will be tempted to let your life revolve exclusively around your children. You will you'll be tempted to let your role as mother uh, determine your identity. To determine your self-worth to the detriment of your own soul and to the detriment of the souls of your children. Don't believe the lie. Keep your mission clear. Focus your eyes. Focus your heart. Focus your work. Just like Mary on the person of Jesus.